Last week, I said that this week would be our final week uh, in the book of Philippians, but what I have decided to do is to delay a week uh, and come back and focus again on the passage that we looked at last week. Uh, So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to look at just two verses this morning, verses 8 and 9. These verses were part of the section that we looked at uh, last week, but toward the end of the sermon, uh, we were running out of time, and I didn't really have much time to do justice to these verses, so I thought it would be good for us to come back and focus in on these two verses. Last week, uh, what we talked about was basically this idea of how there is a, a pathology of anxiety in our culture. Uh, In other words, our culture is structured, it's built in such a way that it is set up to breed nothing but anxiety. Because we go, we go, we go, we go fast, we go fast, we go fast. Um, We have all of these distractions, such as uh, social media, for example, and all of these things converge, not to mention the, the stories that are coming out of the news, and they just breed anxiety. And so what we looked at last week were four practices uh, that the Apostle Paul outlined in those verses to help us push back uh, the, the powers that pull us from our culture in that way that breed anxiety. And the practices that we considered were celebration, uh, self, selflessness, uh, prayer and uh, meditation. Meditation is the one that we're basically coming back to this morning. So bigger picture for those of you who haven't been around for this series, uh, the letter to the Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul helped start this church in the city of Philippi, the Roman Empire. Um, and it's about 10 years later that he's writing to this church to encourage them, uh, to challenge them, and to remind them of the special partnership that they share in the work of God's kingdom in the world. So what I want to do is I want to read, um, actually for context, what I'll do is I'll read starting with verse 4. We'll read 4 through 9, even though we're really focusing in on verses 8 and 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to this God of peace and pray for his help now. God of peace, give us your peace as we look into your word this morning. You desire to form us and shape us into particular kinds of people who reflect you. 
and your truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. So that we pray that you would accomplish a little bit of that during this time, and that you would come and find us and apply the, this passage of Scripture to us, regardless of where we currently find ourselves, whether we are believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We trust that you are able to accomplish your work. We pray in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. A.W. Tozer, maybe you've heard that name before, was a, a Christian writer, and he once said this, what we think about when we are free to think, that is what we are or will soon become. What we think about when we are free to think, that is what we are or will soon become. Now, even though the Apostle Paul doesn't use that specific language, those exact words in this passage in Philippians, he would agree with that statement. That would be one way that we could summarize Philippians 4, 8, and 9, that what we think about when we are free to think is what we are or will soon become. Now, the nice thing about this is that it's easy to do a test case. It's easy to do a diagnostic um, to determine what it is that you've been thinking about uh, in the past week. So just you know, consider the last 24 hours, uh, the weekend, or the week as a whole. As you go back and you retrace your thoughts, those dominant thoughts, um, when you were free to yourself, maybe you had moments, uh, maybe your moments of being free were few and far between, but you still had moments of silence, moments of free thinking. Where did your mind go? What did you land on? What did you dwell on? What did you think about? Tozer, in that quote, would say that that is an indication of who we are or who we will become. I think that's really helpful for us this morning as we consider our passage. Now, we don't want to say this, that we are what we think, because that would communicate that we are simply intellectual, cognitive thinking people, and it doesn't go deeper than that. I would say this, that what we think about most reflects what we love the most. Are you following me? What we think about the most reflects what we love the most. And so as we do that diagnostic and consider our thoughts over the course of the week, what it ultimately can help us to do is go beyond just simply, all right, what are my thoughts, but to what is it that I love? What am I thinking the most about? And that reflects what we love. And so in this passage of Scripture, you heard as I read it, that Paul lists a number of virtues that we'll look at and then says to think about these things. And so that's really the calling, obviously, of these two verses, to think about these virtues, to think about such things. But what Paul is really driving at, what he's really getting at, is he wants to help develop and cultivate our loves. Because the things that he tells us to think about are things that are going to develop and cultivate our loves in a way that uh, is honoring to God and is also beautiful, compelling, and attractive to not only ourselves, but to the world around us. And so I want to look at how um, what Paul is doing here, what he's talking about, uh, forms us into uh, a particular kind of person. 
And so let's look at how um, what we think about shapes what we see and how we live. So let's begin with how um, thinking about these things shapes what we see when we look out at ourselves, as we look inwardly, or as we look outwardly at the world. I want to start with this. Our vision statement here at City Church goes like this. Our vision um, is because Jesus Christ is Lord over every square inch of the city, we imagine people, places, and things flourishing in the gospel. That word, imagine, uh, I want to camp out there for a moment because it's closely tied, I think, I believe, to what Paul is getting at in this passage. What is it that you, now going beyond just the idea of thoughts, what is it that you imagine? We, we could even talk about it in these terms. What is it that you dream about? Like, what are your deepest dreams, your deepest longings? And what is it that you think about in, in light of that? As a church, as God's people, we want to increasingly imagine ourselves and the world in which we dwell and live and interact with in light of how God sees it, in light of his kingdom coming more and more. Last week, we talked about, um, especially under the practice of celebration, we talked about this tendency that, um, is, that each and every one of us can relate to, and it's a tendency to dwell and fixate on what is negative in our lives. If you were here, you remember us talking about that. I shared um, personally in my own life, I shared an illustration of how I was coming off of a week of vacation that if I were to look back on it, I would have so many things to celebrate and rejoice in. But as soon as I came back from vacation, basically immediately I was confronted with all of these things that were going wrong. And so what did I do immediately? I, ugh, the world is terrible, life stinks, uh, there's nothing good. Well, I, I that quickly forgot about the week of which I had so much to celebrate. It's so easy for us to fixate and dwell on what is negative. And that's where this question comes in. When you look at your life, when you look at the world, what do you see? I think this is um, incredibly important. I mean, it's always important, but it's incredibly important as I look at the church right now, as I look at our culture and the relationship between the church and the culture, um, I think sometimes for Christians, for the church, there can be such a negative lens, a negative filter, in which we look out at the culture and the world around us, and we cannot point to things that we can celebrate and rejoice in. And what eventually happens is that our faith is minimized. Our faith shrinks. We become cynical. We have an inability to, to believe that God can actually show up, uh, that, that God is actually already at work in powerful ways doing stuff in this world. So the question is really, how do we develop the eyes of faith? How do we develop uh, imagination that helps us to be able to see what, how God is at work. Now, I'm not talking about, I said this last week, I'm not talking about kind of a romanticized view of things. I'm not talking about a, a faith, a life of faith in which we overlook 
um, the ruinous of the world in which we live as a result of sin. Uh, That's not what I mean, but I'm talking about being able to also see truth, goodness, and beauty where it is because God, the Holy Spirit, is at work. How do we develop the eyes of faith? How do we develop the imagination to see shalom, God's peace coming into the world? Well, what Paul offers us is this practice of meditation, of reflection, of deep thinking about certain things, right? Paul lists very specific virtues. He says to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. When Paul calls us to think about what is true, he's talking about what is in line with reality. In other words, um, that we're able to see things for what they really are. We're able to see things how they really are. The uh, words that we could use interchangeably are real, sincere, genuine. Paul wants us to focus on what is true. Also, what is honorable, that which is deserving of respect, that which is noble, that which is just, Upright, righteous, equitable, keeping the commands of God. We're going to, um, I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon, that we're doing um, one more week in Philippians, so our next series on Proverbs and wisdom is being delayed. But in that series, among other topics, we'll have one week where we look at the idea of justice in the book of Proverbs. Uh, pure means clean, innocent, modest, lovely is acceptable, delightful, beautiful, appealing to the mind and heart, attractive, commendable. It has to do with being well-spoken of, reputable, highly esteemed, excellence, superior, eminently good. And then finally, praiseworthy has to do with that which is remarkable. It's something worth speaking of, something worth telling others of. These are the things that Paul tells us to think about, to meditate on, to reflect on. What is meditation? What is this practice of thinking about these types of things? Well, one way that we can talk about the practice of meditation is really being attentive to God. Being attentive to God and allowing our hearts and our minds to be reordered according to his revelation in Scripture. Now, that last piece is really important, um, what I said, that we meditate on God's revelation to us in His Word. In other words, um, God communicates to us through His Word the true story of the world, the true story of life. Going back to that word true that Paul uses, um, how do we know what is actually true, sincere, real, genuine? How do we know whether we're going along with the grain of how things uh, God created things to be? We have to come back to the revelation of his word, what he has revealed to us about himself and the world in which we live. And so meditation fundamentally, most basically, begins with the fact that God has spoken to us, all right? So we're not just, we don't just reflect on, think about, meditate uh, in general, um, you know, particularly in um, other world religions, the idea of meditation sometimes involves emptying your minds, really for 
Christians, we're kind of doing the opposite of that. Not kind of, we are. I mean, that's, that's what Paul's getting at. We fill our minds with certain things, right? Very specific virtues. And we could summarize these vir- virtues, and I'll, um, you'll know what I'm doing now from this point on. When I say what is good, true, and beautiful, I'm basically using those terms to encapsulate all of these virtues that are listed here. But Paul wants us to fill our minds in meditation with what is good, true, and beautiful. Now, to be able to do this, we have to go back to what we were talking about last week. Our culture does not facilitate this uh, for us, right? Uh, The speed of life in which we live, uh, how fast-paced things are, um, the nature of social media, we, we have to realize that all of these things are working against us, all right? They're working against us. Now, I'm not at all saying um, that technology is evil, um, because actually part of good scriptural meditation would be able to look out at the world at something like technology, social media, and be able to say, well, here's what is good, true, and beautiful about it. Um, God created people, and people created this. There are good things about it, but we're also able to see its limitations. We're able to see um, its traps. And so what we have to realize in our culture is that um, our culture does not facilitate meditation for us, all right? Our, Our culture is not regularly encouraging us to slow down and to be attentive to God or to be attentive to what is important. Um, It works against that. So we have to be aware of that. Really what I'm saying is that we have to carve out time and space in our lives for this. Now, there's a danger in this sounding legalistic. And if that's how this comes across and, and that's how we walk away from this passage, then something has gone terribly wrong. Because there's something deeper at play here. And it's this. And toward the end of the sermon, I'm going to make this a little more explicit in a quote or illustration that I'm going to use. But deep down inside, every one of us longs for, we yearn for what is true, good, and beautiful. We can't help but for that to be the case. Why? Because we're made in God's image. God is those things, right? Um, So these virtues that we read here, those can all be um, thought of as characteristics of God. Not only characteristics of God, but because God is God and he's the one who created the world, um, God created the world with these characteristics or these virtues as um, what were meant to be preeminent characteristics of the world. All right? So um, when Paul calls us to think about these things, Paul's not being legalistic. He's not just, he's not saying, well, you, you know, you, you have to do something spiritual, so meditate on these things. He, he's speaking to us on a whole other level. He's speaking to us on the level of our longings, our yearnings, what we want deep down inside. Because let me tell you this, what you want deep down inside are the very things that are listed in this passage. You can't always articulate it that way. But why is it that when you are confronted with a deep, grave injustice that is very obvious and evident, why is it that most naturally, um, I mean, the, the example that comes to mind because it's, so common, it's been so commonly used since 9-11, and um, 9-11, the anniversary of that is coming up, um, why is it that nobody in their right mind when that happened um, said, 
this is something good and beautiful. So glad that, no, what is our instinctual response? This is not the way things are supposed to be. This is terrible, right? And we could say the same thing of other uh, catastrophes that happen around the world. Why? That's just one example of what I'm talking about. It's instinctual. And so um, it's because God has made us this way. And so what Paul is wanting to do here is he's wanting to form the Philippians, shape the Philippians into greater Christ-likeness, because greater Christ-likeness lines up with God's intentions for how he created humanity and what humanity is supposed to look like. Now, also remember the context here. The Philippians find themselves in a situation that is not too different than the situation that we find ourselves in as God's people in different ways. Um, We are living in um, a a world now, at least a country, a culture now, where Christianity um, is not uh, as highly esteemed as it once was. was. Now, we've touched on these kinds of things at different times, and another time and place, we can talk about the reasons for that. Um, There are a lot of reasons for that. But for now, I'm just talking about the reality of what is true. Um, Christianity does not have um, the the, the place of uh, importance and influence that it once did. And in fact, many are now hostile to the Christian faith. Well, that was um, certainly, in a much greater sense, the case um, for the Philippians in the Roman Empire. And when it came to the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was masterful, as is the case in our Western culture, about um, developing and cultivating our imaginations. And this is something that we have to be aware of. It's part of slowing down to be able to realize this. Um, We are constantly bombarded by the culture around us, um, and it's not innocuous. It's all a part of shaping our imaginations that we might live in greater alignment with the empire, so to speak. And that was the case here in the Roman Empire. And Paul is writing um, to the Philippians under house arrest, remember, because um, because of his faith in Jesus and his commitment to spread the good news of Jesus, Paul is writing under house arrest And he is writing to a people for whom it's not cool for them to be Christian. It's very much the opposite. But notice what Paul does. And this is the case throughout. He is not calling them to retreat. He is not ultimately calling them to have an antagonistic posture toward the culture. Paul is fixated on deepening them in the gospel and helping to form them into particular kinds of people, kinds of people who reflect Jesus more and more, all right? So that's the solution. That's the answer to um, how we live in a, a fallen world, a world that is we, where we see the marks of the ruinous of sin all around us. It's greater Christ-likeness. It's Jesus, his person and his work being applied to our lives in deeper ways so that our lives might reflect him increasingly. And so this is really what Paul, Paul's, Paul's purpose here is missional. Paul realizes that he he doesn't have many years left. He doesn't have much time left. And it's incredibly important for the Jesus movement, for Paul to communicate to these young believers how to live in a world in which Christianity is marginalized. To be able to do this, like I said, we have to slow down. To be able to practice meditation in this way, to to, um, dwell on, 
and focus on and think about what is good, true, and beautiful, we absolutely have to slow down, which means or includes you being alone with your thoughts. Remember last week, I shared a quote from an author named Alan Noble, and it was basically along the lines of, this is what he fears most in life. And it's so easy for him to not have to do that. He used the example of being in an elevator, just him, and he's alone with his thoughts, and it's even just that little bit of time, it's unbearable. So he pulls out his phone and starts scrolling through his feed. You you know, right? That's where we live. But to be able to be shaped and formed like this, we have to slow down. We have to be alone with our thoughts. Psalm 1 um, is a powerful psalm. It paints a picture for us, ultimately of Jesus, but also the kind of person who resembles Jesus increasingly in their life. And it speaks highly, it speaks beautifully of God's word. On his law, I meditate day and night. Now, the question that I think we need to ask ourselves is, how does this align with what you said about Paul's purpose here being missional? Because um, wouldn't, this, wouldn't this idea of slowing down, of meditating on God's word day and night, won't that actually remove us more and more from the world? It could, but not if it's done appropriately, not if it's being done in the way that I think Paul is calling us to do. Think of the context of a letter as a whole. Philippians 3.20, um, you remember that verse from just a few weeks ago? Paul talks about how our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And we could point to other examples in the letter where, yes, we are to be set apart. We are in union. We're connected to Jesus. But the reality is the way that's supposed to work is that the direction is from heaven to earth. Who we are becoming in Jesus is necessarily meant to influence and give shape to and form others in the world around us. So Paul is not calling us out of the world. And in the psalmist, meditate on his day, word, and night, it includes the fleshing out, the living it out. And so meditation, and we're going to get at this, the second point, it's not just think about these things, but notice toward the end in verse 9, what does Paul say? Practice these things. Meditation, when done rightly, leads to the living out of what is good, true, and beautiful. And so meditation includes things like okay, not only what does God's word say to me here, but what might it look like for me to imagine the world around me in light of what God's word says here? What might it look like for me to reimagine my own life or this area of my life in light of what God's word says here? And then what are some of the specific ways? So let's get practical. Like This is all meditation. So maybe meditation is not what you thought. Um, meditation includes, okay, what are some of the ways today that I can actually live this out? All right, I'm just going to pick one. I'm speaking hypothetically. Um, I'm going to, let's say you're reading a passage about loving your neighbor. Okay, I feel challenged. This person, I've had a hard time loving, so today I am going to seek to love them in this way. So very practical, very fleshed out. That is part of meditation, and that's why the, the psalmist is not talking about simply reading God's word Um, divorced from the world all day, he's talking about, yes, being immersed and soaked in God's word 
which includes the actual living it out. So you take it with you throughout the course of the day. And I want to say this too, because I think this is really important. It's not enough to just try not to think bad things. All right? It's not enough, it's not sufficient to simply try to try your hardest to not think bad things. The reason I say this is because that is actually, as Christians, so often where we live. It's how we try to manage our sin. We try so hard um, to not sin. We try so hard to not think of bad things that what happens? All we can think of are bad things. If I were to tell you right now, okay, don't think about the water downstairs, what are you thinking about right now? The water downstairs. It's not enough to just simply try not to think bad things because you're going to actually end up thinking those bad things. The point of meditation is to fill your mind and your hearts with what is good, true, and beautiful. So that's how you combat bad thoughts is by filling your mind with good thoughts. And this is a lifestyle thing. Um, Because the other thing that we tend to do is that we're in the moment of crisis or tension where we're really... We, we feel weighed down by those bad thoughts, right? And we're trying so hard. Okay, I'm not going to think about the bad thoughts. I'm going to read God's Word. I'm thinking about the good thoughts. Now, that's important. Um, you have to do that. But I think the way that you combat those moments where it's most intense is actually by how you're meditating on God's Word all the other moments of your life. Because that you're practicing, right? You're practicing. And so when you get into that moment where those bad thoughts seem so heavy, you have tools to draw on. You've been meditating and soaking in God's word throughout the week. And so you're able to respond in a way where you're better positioned um, to fight against those bad thoughts, so to speak. All right, now let's lastly talk about how you live. How does... Thinking about um, these things, which ultimately reflects our love, what we love most, we talked about how it um, helps us to see what it really is. How does it um, impact how we live? I already pointed this out, but there are two imperatives in these verses. So often, only the first is given attention, which is think about these things. But as we looked at in verse 9, Paul also says, practice these things. So think about these things, but live them out. Practice them. Live in light of them. The repetition of that word, whatever, as I was hearing, as I was reading that for you, did you, did you catch that? Um, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. That repetition, that repetition is used by Paul intentionally. He does that on purpose. It's designed to impress on the hearts of the Philippians and on our hearts as well the comprehensive scope of these virtues. That what is good, true, and beautiful has influence and is to be lived out in every area of our lives. The idea here is that you will live out what you think about the most. So that's an additional um, principle or point that we could add to what we've already covered so far. Um, We talked about how what we think about reflects what we love most, 
Because that is true, um, we will live out what we think most about. And I'm sure that if you were to do the diagnostic, all right, what is it that you've been obsessing about, fixating on the most over the course of the past week? Have you found yourself living it out? Um, Practically, just so you are able to connect with exactly what I'm talking about, remember my story last week. Um, Again, it was a story of me coming off of vacation. Um, For those of you who weren't here last week, literally within five minutes of arriving back on vacation, I found found out that um, I had a big car issue that ended up costing $600, um, and that mice had um, wrecked our kitchen by getting flour everywhere. So literally five minutes into walking back from vacation, I encountered these things, and where did I immediately go, as I already talked about? Dwelling, I, I could not see, I could not imagine anything other than these problems. And I fixated, I obsessed over them, And guess how I lived over the next few hours? Grumpy, um, not very loving toward my family. I lived out exactly what I was thinking about. So this is true. And so what Paul is pointing us to, he's pointing us to that which is good, which is good, true, and beautiful, so that we would think about those things and meditate on them, because the more you meditate on them, the more you reflect and think about them, Guess what you will end up eventually, over time, increasingly living out? These virtues. Now, this is an important um, point as well. Paul is writing this letter um, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Um, They've come to a point in their lives where they recognize that Jesus really was the Son of God, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, and that through faith in him, they are restored to right relationship with God. And so Paul is writing to people who are in right relationship with God. When we try to, now I'm not saying that you can't live a virtuous life uh, apart from Jesus. Um, We all can point to people who we would say in some way are virtuous and they aren't Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't, you, you can't live out virtue in the way that Paul is talking about, disconnected from relationship with Jesus. Because in the biblical story, Jesus is the one who embodies these virtues perfectly. And the fact is, the good news of Christianity is that you will never completely um, arrive at a point in your life where you can say, I got there. See all these things? Look at me. Every single one of them, I can model them perfectly. We never get to that point. It's a constant battle. We're constantly wrestling, fighting against um, our bad thoughts, right? Our fallen nature. But the good news of Christianity is that there is forgiveness that is real and that we are in union, in connection with Jesus. And so this is actually an identity issue for Paul that we actually, as God's people, can grow into these things because it's who we are in Christ. By virtue of our faith in Jesus, we are connected to him in such a way that his record, his reputation, his virtue becomes our own. And so it's not a matter of, all right, this isn't really who you are, so try to live into this. It's, no, this is actually who you are, who you are capable of being by being connected to Jesus. Live in light of it. 
Meditate on God's word. Soak in what is good, true, and beautiful so that who you actually really are would be more and more visible to you and those around you. Now, finally, this has, uh, I've alluded to this, but this has impact and ramifications for the world around us. And this is why Paul is making such a big deal of this in, in these two verses. Again, he is training them. He's mentoring them. He's discipling them in how to live out their Christian identity in the midst of a culture where it's really hard to do so. And what's clear here is that it is hard, right? It's really hard. Um, Formation in Christ is really, really difficult because there's so much from our culture working against us and then internally in our own lives working against it. It's really hard, but that's why we have to be deliberate about it. It's why we have to carve out space for it. And the reality is, is that we are carving out space already for the things that we love most. So we come full circle. I so often in my life give the excuse of, well, where can I find more time to meditate on God's word? Well, I'm finding plenty of time to meditate on my newsfeed. I prize, I make time for what I love most. And so formation, that's why formation happens at the level of our loves. And as we pursue God, as we follow him, we have to ask God to transform us and to give us insight at that level, the level of which we love, not just simply um, what we think and, and how we, um, it includes how we use our time. But it has impact on the world around us. I'll say it like this. The people around us need to see these virtues exemplified in us. Now, I'm including everything that I've said. We're not going to do this perfectly. I'm not putting an unnecessary burden on us. We need Jesus. In order to be able to do this, we have to lean uh, more deeply into Jesus. But the world around us absolutely needs to see the virtues that are listed here um, made visible through your life. You, you can relate to what I'm about to say. You know, as I look at the news, as I, I'm, I'm just so sick of it every day, all the time. Um, everything is so divisive. Everything is so cynical. Um, there's nothing good, true, and beautiful. And then I start, you know, wondering to myself, how in the world as Christians can we live? In... We actually, as the church, need to be leading the way. We need to be leading the way in clarifying and showing what good, true, and beautiful actually is and what it looks like embodied. The people around you are desperate. They are desperate to see these very things manifested in the world. The reason that you get cynical sometimes is because it's so often the case that we don't see these things and we wonder, is there really good, true, anything good, true, and beautiful out there? Well, there is. It's found in Jesus. And as the church, we are in Jesus. And we have this high calling, this beautiful calling to live this out for the sake of the world that desperately needs Jesus and these virtues uh, made visible. In an article a few months ago, Brett McCracken um, on the Gospel Coalition website um, wrote an article about um, the 
recent documentary about uh, Fred Rogers called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And in this uh, article, he talks about the appeal of goodness, how it is something that is compelling and attractive. And in this article, he says, ultimately, Rogers had a humble and applaudable goal with his show, to create TV that made goodness look attractive. Going against the grain of children's programming that often glorified cynicism, childness, childish, childishness, and other bad behavior, Rogers was unapologetically committed to modeling virtue, respect, growth, maturity. He didn't think goodness needed to be presented with a wink. And then finally, he said this, Perhaps the reminder we most need from Mr. Rogers today is this. Goodness is not only possible, it's compelling, it's desirable. Brothers and sisters, our neighbors long to be reminded of the fact that this is true. Or maybe they long to know that for the first time that this is actually true, that goodness is not only possible, but it's compelling it's desirable. And true goodness, lasting goodness, authentic goodness is found in Jesus. And so I want you to be encouraged by this. I want you to be excited about this. That yes, this process of formation is difficult. It can be daunting. But not only do we, as we really press into this, as we press into Jesus and his grace and his goodness, not only do we derive incredible joy and benefit, but what we meditate on, we end up practicing. And as we practice this in the world around us, our neighbors take notice. I, I could stand up here and um, tell you story after story, um, some of which are even just in the past 7 to 14 days of my neighbors being blessed through people in this church. I'll leave myself out of it. I'll let them judge whether I'm blessing people. But I can tell you, I could probably off the top of my head tell you five to ten stories right now about people in this church blessing neighbors and neighbors actually being emotionally impacted by it. This stuff is real, and it's not pragmatic, all right? We're not talking about being pragmatic. We're talking about pointing people to what is actually good, true, and beautiful. And it's found in the way of Jesus. It's found in life with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you have great plans for us. You desire for us to look more and more like yourself. Do this in and through us, even in the midst of our doubts, even though it's hard for us to believe that you can actually do this in me, in us. You have all the power. You have all of the grace. You have all of the resources. And so we look to you to supply us, to provide us with what we need, to know you, to experience joy in you, and to make you look compelling to the world because you actually are. Draw people to yourself, we pray, including ourselves. And your name we pray, amen.